Chapter Seventeen of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen Again the Twelve Million Two Hundred and Twenty Five Thousand Acre Bill, Sessions eighteen fifty two, eighteen fifty four. Nearly two years elapsed after the second miscarriage of her land bill before Miss Dix ventured to appeal again to Congress, and then, as far as 1852 to 53 was concerned, only in a tentative way. In vain had she exercised the spell of her magnetic personality over the minds of representatives of all the states of the Union. While in her presence, and under the sway of her spirit, the superior number of both houses had given her assurances of support, had indeed given her, when the test of the vote came, a large majority, though not unitedly in the same session. But once back among their associates, and delivered over to partisan newspapers and menacing letters from constituents, enough were always wavering to be glad to seize every pretext for delay, and thus imperil the cause. She felt then that she must wait. Meanwhile, she was indefatigably at work in the southern, middle, and western states, winning the memorable series of victories that have been already narrated in previous chapters. With the opening, however, of the session of 1854, all the signs looked favorable for renewing the national campaign. The first fierce excitement in the Democratic Party over the land issue had in a measure subsided while the unexampled series of triumphs she herself had achieved in so many states had steadily increased in congress the moral ascendancy of her name five thousand copies of her memorial were at once ordered to be printed and strong supporters in each house stepped to the front to champion her cause she now worked with buoyant hope seeing assured victory ahead. Still, she jealously watched every step, and more eagerly than ever studied the character of every congressman, concentrating her personal efforts on those she most feared. It was the proudest and happiest year of her life, seemingly to her the crested tidal wave, lifting and bearing on an irresistible flood the cumulative results of fourteen years of toil, anxiety, and prayer. The first signal victory came, March ninth, 1854, when her bill passed the Senate by a large majority. No other record of her feeling over this triumph remains than a hasty report to her friend Miss Heath. It is brief and simple, but full of her habitual devoutness of spirit. Quote, Washington, D.C., March 9th, 1854. Dear Annie, Yours this morning received just when I was putting pen to paper to tell you that my bill has passed the Senate by more than two-thirds majority, 25 to 12. Congratulations flow in. 
I, in my heart, think the very opponents are glad. And as I rejoice quietly and silently, I feel that it is the Lord who has made my mountain to stand strong. End quote. Still, the House of Representatives remained to be carried. There she feared the sunken rocks on which the bark of her hopes might again be shattered. Five months of protracted suspense must she linger through before at last, in August, the decisive vote came. It was victory for the bill. Once again, a brief note to Miss Heath records the fact. Quote, Washington, D.C., August 28, 1854. Dear Annie, as you know, my ten million acre bill, rather twelve million two hundred and twenty five thousand, has passed the House ninety eight to eighty four, and is in its final passage through the Senate. My district hospital bill has also passed the Senate unanimously for one hundred thousand dollars for the relief of the insane of the Army and Navy and those of the district. End quote. It will thus be seen that, in this year-long series of congressional campaigns, twice in the Senate and twice in the House, both being Democratic by large majorities, had Miss Dix carried her bill triumphantly through. This last time, happily, success had been secured in both houses in the same session and now the bill but awaited the signature of the president to become law. Twelve million two hundred and twenty-five thousand acres of God's earth rescued and consecrated forever to the succor of the most sorely afflicted and cruelly entreated of earth's creatures. Who can grasp in imagination the full significance of this? None, surely even by the most distant approach, in comparison with the merciful woman who for fourteen years had traversed the dread inferno in which these miserable wretches lay in chains and fire, and whose very dreams had been haunted by their cries. Divided among the several states, and carefully protected so as to share in the steadily augmenting value of land, this vast domain meant stately buildings rising on every hand, with every appliance to minister to the mind diseased, meant all the resources of advancing science and humanity in sacred league to pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, meant sunshine, grass, flowers, singing birds, and babbling brooks, in emulous accord to weave together the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And all this had been won by the hand of a single frail and suffering woman. Hers the prophetic foresight, hers the intrepid courage, hers the unwearying patience, hers the force of angelic persuasion, through the united power of which, troubled on every side, yet not distressed, cast down, but not destroyed, she had wrought this triumph of mercy. Congratulations fast flowed in. 
already in 1850, had Dr. Thomas S. Kirkbride, that steadfast light through the darkest hours of the history of insanity in America, assured her, I have full confidence your bill will pass, and nothing but the supreme selfishness of politicians, which is genuine insanity as to the welfare of the country, of the very worst kind, keeps Congress from doing some good acts which would tend to redeem them in the estimation of the people. But now he could rejoicingly write, A thousand congratulations on the success of your noble, disinterested, and persevering efforts. There is some virtue yet in Congress, and a large hope for the Republic. It seemed at last that the especial work of Miss Dix in the United States was over, at once triumphant and dying through its very fullness of triumph. The letters which now poured in upon her from superintendents and philanthropic men and women were full of the tenderest expression of a sense of relief, that henceforth she would be freed from the necessity of such exhausting labors. No more need now of these lonely journeyings, these explorations of the depths of human misery in remote and hidden places, these long and weary wrestlings with successive state legislatures. She was, in truth, in a condition of extreme exhaustion when the final victory came. But now at last had arrived the day of honorable discharge from the service. She could receive it, brimful of the sense of thanksgiving, her heart filled with the peace of God passing understanding for all she had been permitted to do. Then, rested and recuperated, she could write out the wonderful story of her life, and, as her friend Dr. Luther V. Bell had urged upon her, make a book that would do more for the cause she so loved than any further practical action. So things looked, in that supreme hour of success, to all Miss Dix's sympathetic friends. And now, suddenly, and all unlooked for, out of the clear, radiant sky, without a cloud to presage its advent, there fell a lightning bolt. The president... Franklin Pierce, so the incredible rumor ran, had vetoed the bill. A stroke of his pen and the bright vision had vanished. The principality was gone. The stately buildings, the trained service of science and humanity, the sheltering homes, everything but the poor wretches who were to have been ministered to by these, had, as by the malign stroke, of a magician's wand, been changed into so many idle and empty pictures of mirage. The struggle and oft-times agony of the long years of travail had aborted in nothing. Miss Dix fairly staggered under the blow. At first, while it was merely rumor, she refused to credit it. It could not be. President Pierce, she insisted, had personally testified to her his own interest in the measure. A veto so purely arbitrary, so purely founded in individual will, 
a veto in the face of such great majorities where his own party was in the ascendancy? No, it could not be. Had not twice in the last four years, and after protracted debate, the bill passed House and Senate? Here was the clear will of a humane and enlightened people, declared through its representatives. Impossible that any single man could have the wanton cruelty to stand forth now, when righteousness and peace had thus kissed one another and cry, I forbid the bans. Alas, rumors swiftly passed into stern reality. The bill had been vetoed. For a few days, Miss Dix bravely rallied from the stroke. While a ray of hope remained, she was all fire of action. Swiftly calling to her side her most powerful supporters, she pressed upon them the question of the possibility of still carrying the bill over the presidential veto by a two-thirds majority. They sadly told her no. There were too many subservient politicians to whom to cross the will of the executive would mean political death. And she bowed her head, doing her best to say, Thy will, not mine, be done. But sinking into a state of such complete physical prostration as to feel that absolute rest and change were the immediate question of life or death with her. She was willing to go away now, to go anywhere. End of chapter 17